0: Chapter twenty one of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty one. All right, Pedal, I can find my way about, said Doggy, dismissing the old butler and his wife after a little colloquy in the hall. Everything's in perfect order, sir, just as it was when you left, and there are the keys, said Mrs. Pedal. The Pedals retired. Doggy-eyed the heavy bunch of keys with an air of distaste. For two years he had not seen a key. What on earth could be the good of all this locking and unlocking? He stuffed the bunch in his tunic pocket and looked around him. It seemed difficult to realise that everything he saw was his own. Those trees fizzle from the hall windows were his own, and the land on which they grew. This spacious, beautiful house was his own. He had only to wave a hand, as it were, and it would be filled with serving-men and serving-maids ready to do his bidding his foot was on his native heath and his name was james marmagute trevor did he ever actually live here have his being here was he ever part and parcel of it all the oriental rugs the soft stair carpet on the noble oak staircase leading to the gallery the oil paintings the impressive statuary the solid historical oak hall furniture were it not so acutely remembered, he would have felt like a man accustomed all his life to barns and tents and hedgerows and fetid holes on the ground, who had wandered into some ill-guarded palace. He entered to the drawing-room. The faithful pedals, with pathetic zeal to give him a true homecoming, had set it out fresh and clean and polished. The windows were like crystal, and flowers welcomed him from every available vase. And so in the dining-room the Chippendale dining-table gleamed like a sombre translucent pool. On the sideboard, amid the array of shining silver, the very best old Waterford decanters filled with whisky and brandy and old cut-glass goblets invited him to refreshment. The precious mezzotint portraits, mostly of his own collecting, regarded him urbanely from the walls. The Times and the Morning Post were laid out on the little table by his accustomed chair, near the massive marble mantelpiece. "'The dear old idiots,' said Doggy, and he sat down for a moment, and unfolded the newspapers, and strewed them around to give the impression that he had read and enjoyed them. And then he went into his own private and particular den, the Peacock and Ivory Room, which had been the supreme expression of himself, and for which he had ached during many nights of misery. He looked round, and his heart sank." He seemed to come face to face with the ineffectual, effeminate creature who brought upon him the disgrace of his man's life. But for the creator and sybarite enjoyer of this sickening boudoir, he would now be an honoured command of men. He conceived a silent, violent hatred of the room. The only thing in the place worth a man's consideration, save a few watercolours, was the honest grand piano which, because it did not aesthetically harmonise with his squeaky pot-bellied theobos and tinkling spinet, he had hidden in an alcove behind a curtain. He turned an eye of disgust on the vellum backs of his books in the closed Chippendale cases, on the drawers containing his collection of wallpapers, on the footling peepcocks, on the curtains and cushions, on the veined ivory wallpaper, which, beginning to fade two years ago, now looked mean and meaningless. It was an abominable room, it ought to be smelling of musk or pastils or josticks. He might have done so, for once he had tried something of the sort, and did not renew the experiment, only because the smell happened to make him sick. There was one feature of the room at which, for a long time, he avoided looking, but wherever he turned it impressed itself on his consciousness as the miserable genius of the despicable place, and that was his collection of little China dogs.' At last he planted himself in front of the great glass cabinet, whence thousands of little dogs looked at him out of little black dots of eyes. There were dogs of all nationalities, all breeds, all twisted in enormities of human invention. There were monstrous dogs of China and Japan, Aztec dogs, dogs in Sèvres and Dresden and Chelsea, six many dogs from Austria and Switzerland, everything in the way of a little dog that man had made. He stood in front of it, with almost a doggish snarl on his lips. He'd spent hundreds and hundreds of pounds over these futile dogs. Yet never a flesh-and-blood real lusty canis futilis had he possessed. He used to dislike real dogs. The shivering rat Goliath could scarcely be called a dog. he wasted his heart over these contemptible counterfeits. To add to his collection, catalogue it, describe it, correspond about it with the semi-imbecile Russian prince, his only rival collector, and once ranked with his history of wallpapers as the serious and absorbing pursuit of his life. Then, suddenly, Doggy's hatred reached the crisis of ferocity. He saw red. He seized the first instrument of destruction that came to his hand, a little gilt Louis XV music-stool, and bashed the cabinet full in front the glass flew into a thousand splinters he bashed again the woodwork of the cabinet stoutly resisting worked hideous damage on the gilt stool but Doggy went on bashing till the cabinet sank in ruins and the little dogs headless tailless rent in twain strewed the floor then Doggy stamped on them with his heavy munition boots until dogs and glass were reduced to powder and the aubassant carpet was cut to pieces damn the whole infernal place cried Doggy and he heaved a mandolin tied up with disgusting peacock blue ribbons at the bookcase, and fled from the room. He stood for a while in the hall, shaken with his anger, then mounted the staircase and went to his own bedroom with the satin-wood furniture and nattier blue hangings. God, what a bedchamber for a man! He would have liked to throw bombs into the nest of effeminacy. But his mother had arranged it, so in a way it was immune from his iconoclastic rage went down to the dining-room, helped himself to a whisky and soda from the sideboard, and sat down in the armchair amidst the scattered newspapers, and held his head in his hands, and thought. The house was hateful. All its associations were hateful. If he lived there until he was ninety, the abhorred ghost of the pre-war little doggy Trevor would always haunt every nook and cranny of the place, mouthing the quarter of a century's shame that had culminated in the great disgrace. "'At last he brought his hand down with a bang on the arm of his chair. "'He would never live in this house of dishonour again. "'Never! he would sell it. "'By God!' he cried, starting to his feet, as the inspiration came. "'He would sell it as it stood, lock, stock and barrel, with everything in it. "'He would wipe out at one stroke the whole of his unedifying history. "'Denby Hall gone! What could tie him to Dirdlebury? "'He would be freed for ever from the petrification of the grey, cramping little city.' If Peggy didn't like it, that was Peggy's affair. In material things, he was master of his destiny. Peggy would have to follow him in his career, whatever it was. Not he, Peggy. He saw clearly that which had been mapped out for him, the silly little social ambitions, the useless existence, little Doggy Trevor forever trailing obediently behind the Lady of Denby Hall. Doggy threw himself back in his chair and laughed, no one had ever heard him laugh like that. After a while he was even surprised at himself. He was perfectly ready to marry Peggy. It was almost a preordained thing. A rupture of the engagement was unthinkable. Her undeviating loyalty bound him by every fibre of gratitude and honour. But it was essential that Peggy should know whom and what she was marrying. The doggy trailing in her wake, no longer existed. If she were prepared to follow the new doggie, well and good, if not, there would be conflict for that he was prepared. he strode this time contemptuously into his wrecked peacock and ivory room, where his telephone blatant and hideous thing was ingeniously concealed behind a screen, and rang Spooner and Smithson, the leading firm of auctioneers and estate agents in the town, at the mention of his name, Mr. Spooner, the senior partner came to the telephone. "'Yes, I'm back, Mr. Spooner, and I'm quite well,' said Doggy. "'I want to see you on very important business. When can you fix it up? Any time. Can you come along now to Denby Hall?' Mr. Spooner would be pleased to wait upon Mr. Trevor immediately. He would start at once. Doggy went out and sat on the front doorstep, and smoked cigarettes till he came. "'Mr. Spooner,' said he, as soon as the elderly auctioneer descended from his little car, "'I'm going to sell the whole of the Denby Hall estate, "'and, with the exception of a few odds and ends, "'family relics and so forth, which I'll pick out, "'all the contents of the house— "'furniture, pictures, sheets, towels, and kitchen clutter. "'I've only got six days' leave, "'and I want all the worries, as far as I am concerned, "'settled and done with before I go. "'So you'll have to buck up, Mr Spooner. "'If you say you can't do it, "'I'll put the business by telephone "'into the hands of a London agent.' "'It took Mr Spooner nearly a quarter of an hour to recover his breath, gain a grasp of the situation, and assemble his business wits. "'Of course I'll carry out your instructions, Mr. Trevor,' he said at last. "'You can safely leave the matter in our hands. "'But but although it is against my business interests, "'pray let me beg you to reconsider your decision. "'It is such a beautiful home, your grandfather, the bishop's, before you.' "'He bought it pretty cheap, didn't he, somewhere in the seventies. "'I forget the price he paid for it, but I could look it up. "'Of course we were the agents. "'And then it was let to some dismal people "'until my father died and my mother took it over. "'I'm sorry, I can't get sentimental about it, "'as if it were an ancestral hall, Mr Spooner. "'I wanted to get rid of the place, "'because I hate the sight of it.' "'It would be presumptuous of me to say anything more,' "'answered the old-fashioned country auctioneer. "'Say what you like, Mr Spooner.' "'laughed Doggy in his disarming way. "'We're old friends, but send in your people this afternoon "'to start on inventories and measuring up, or whatever they do, "'and I'll look round tomorrow and select the bits I may want to keep. "'You'll see after the storing of them, won't you?' "'Of course, Mr. Trevor.' "'Mr. Spooner drove away in his little car, a much-dazed man. "'Like the rest of Durdlerbury and the circumjacent county, "'he had assumed that when the war was over... Mr. James Marmaduke Trevor would lead his bride from the deanery into Denby Hall, where the latter, in her own words, would proceed to make things hum. "'My dear,' said he to his wife at luncheon, "'you could have knocked me over with a feather. "'What's he doing it for? Goodness knows. "'I can only assume that he's grown so accustomed to the destruction of property in France "'that he's got bitten by the fever.' "'Perhaps Peggy Conover has turned him down,' suggested his wife. Who, much younger than he employed more modern turns of speech. And I shouldn't wonder if she has. Since the war girls aren't on the lookout for pretty monkeys." "'If Miss Conover thinks she's got heard of a pretty monkey and that young man, she's very much mistaken,' replied Mr Spooner." Meanwhile Doggy summoned Peddle to the hall. He knew that his announcement would be a blow to the old man, but this was a world of blows, and after all one could not organise one's life to suit the sentiments of old family idiots of retainers served they never so faithfully. Peddle, said he, I'm sorry to say, I'm going to sell, Denby Hall. Messrs Spooner and Smithson's people are coming in this afternoon, so give them every facility, also tea or beer or whisky or whatever they want. About what's going to happen to you and Mrs. Peddle, don't worry a bit, I'll look after that. You've been jolly good friends of mine all my life.' And I'll see that everything's as right as rain. He turned before the amazed old butler could reply, and marched away. Pedal gaped at his retreating figure. if those were the ways which Mr. Marmaduke had learned in the army, the lower sank the army in Pedal's estimation to sell Demby Hall over his head. Why the place and all about it was his so deeply. Are squatters' rights implanted in the human instinct? Doggy marched along the familiar high road, strangely exhilarated. What was to be his future, he neither knew nor cared. At any rate, it would not lie in Durdlebury. He had cut out Durdlebury for ever from his scheme of existence. If he got through the war, he and Peggy would go out somewhere into the great world where there was man's work to do. Parliament. "'Peggy has suggested it as a sort of country gentleman's hobby "'that would keep him amused during the London seasons. "'So might prospective brides have talked to prospective husbands fifty years ago. "'Parliament! God help him, and God help Peggy if ever he got into Parliament. "'He would speak the most unpopular truths about the race of politicians "'if ever he got into Parliament. "'Peggy would wish that neither of them had ever been born. "'He held the trenches' views on politicians. "'No fear!' No muddy politics as an elegant amusement for him. He laughed, as he had laughed in the dining-room at Denbigh Hall. He would have a bad quarter of an hour with Peggy, naturally. She would say, with every right, What about me? Am I not to be considered? Yes, of course she would be considered. The position his fortune assured him would always be hers. He had no notion of asking her to share a log cabin in the wilds of Canada, or to bury herself in Oliver's dud island of Hohen the great world would be before them. But give me some sort of an idea of what you propose to do, she would, with perfect propriety, demand. And there Doggy was stuck. He had not the ghost of a programme. All he had was faith in the war, faith in the British spirit and genius that would bring it to a perfect end, in which there would be unimagined opportunities for a man to fling himself into a new life and new conditions, and begin the new work of a new civilization. If she'll only understand, said he, that I can't go back to those blasted little dogs, all will be well. Not quite all. Although his future was as nebulous as the planetary system in the Milky Way, at the back of his mind was a vague conviction that it would be connected somehow with the welfare of those men whom he had learned to know and love, the men to whom reading was little pleasure, writing a schoolchild's laborious task, the glories of the earth as interpreted through art, a sealed book. THE MEN WHOSE DAILY SPEECH WAS FOUL METAPHOR, THE MEN, HEMI-DEMI-SEMI-EDUCATED, WHOSE CRUDE SOCIALISTIC OPINIONS THE OPEN LESSONS OF HISTORY AND THE ETERNAL FACTS OF HUMAN NATURE DERISIVELY REFUTED, THE MEN WHO HAD SWEATED AND SLAVED IN FACTORY AND IN FIELD TO NO OTHER PURPOSE THAN TO OBEY THE BIOLOGICAL LAWS OF THE PERPETUATION OF THE SPECIES, YET THE MEN WITH THE SWEET MINDS OF CHILDREN, THE GUSHING TENDERNESS OF WOMEN, THE HEARTS OF LIONS, the men compared to whom the rotten, squealing heroes of Homer were a horde of cowardly savages. They were men, these comrades of his, swift with all that there can be of divine glory in men. And when they came home and the high gods sounded the false trumpet of peace, there would be men's work in England for all the doggies in England to do. Again, if Peggy could understand this, all would be well. If she missed the point altogether, and tauntedly advised him to go and join his friends, the socialists, at once, then—he shoved his cap to the back of his head and wrinkled his forehead—then everything will be in the soup, said he. These reflections brought him to the deanery. The nearest way of entrance was the stable-yard gate, which was always open. He strode in, waved a hand to Chipmunk, who was sitting on the ground with his back against the garage, smoking a pipe. "'and entered the house by the French window of the dining-room. "'Where should he find Peggy? "'His whole mind was set on the immediate interview. "'Obviously the drawing-room was the first place of search. "'He opened the drawing-room door, "'the hinges and lock oily, noiseless, perfectly ordained, "'like everything in the perfectly ordained English deanery, "'and strode in. "'His entrance was so swift, so protected from sound, "'that the pair had no time to start apart before he was there,' With his amazed eyes full upon them. Peggy's hands were on Oliver's shoulders. Tears were streaming down her face as her head was thrown back from him, and Oliver's arm was around her. Her back was to the door. Oliver withdrew his arm and retired a pace or two. "'Lord Almighty!' he whispered. "'Here's Doggy!' Then Peggy, realising what had happened, wheeled round and stared tragically at Doggy, who preoccupied with the search for her had not removed his cap he drew himself up i beg your pardon he said with imperturbable irony and turned oliver rushed across the room stop you silly fool he slammed the open door caught doggy by the arm and dragged him away from the threshold his blue eyes blazed and the lips beneath the short cropped moustache quivered it's all my fault Doggy." "'I'm a beast and a cad and anything you like to call me. "'But for things you said last night, well, no, hang it all, there's no excuse. "'Everything's on me. Peggy's as true as gold.' "'Peggy, red-eyed, pale-cheeked, stood a little way back, silent, on the defensive. "'Doggy, looking from one to the other, said quietly, "'A triangular explanation is scarcely decent. "'Perhaps you might let me have a word or two with Peggy?' "'Yes, it would be best.' she whispered. "'I'll be in the dining-room if you want me,' said Oliver, and went out. Doggy took her hand and, very gently, led her to a chair. "'Let us sit down.' "'There,' said he. "'Now we can talk more comfortably. First, before we touch on this situation, let me say something to you. It may ease things.' Peggy, humiliated, did not look at him. She nodded. "'All right,' "'I made up my mind this morning to sell Denby Hall and its contents. "'I have given old Spooner instructions.' "'She glanced at him involuntarily. "'Sell Denby Hall?' "'Yes, dear. "'You see, I have made up my mind definitely, if I am spared, "'not to live in Durdlebury after the war.' "'What were you thinking of doing?' she asked in a low voice. "'That would depend on after-war circumstances. "'Anyhow, I was coming to you when I entered the room with my decision.' I knew, of course, that it wouldn't please you, that you would have something to say to it, perhaps something very serious. What do you mean by something very serious? Our little contract, dear, said Doggy, was based on the understanding that you would not be uprooted from the place in which are all your life's associations. If I broke that understanding, it would leave you a free agent to determine the contract, as the lawyers say. So perhaps, Peggy dear, we might dismiss, well, other considerations— "'and just discuss this?' "'Peggy twisted a rag of handkerchief "'and wavered for a moment. "'Then she broke out with fresh tears on her cheek. "'You're a dear of dears, to put it that way. "'Only you could do it. "'I've been a brute old boy, but I couldn't help it. "'I did try to play the game.' "'You did, Peggy dear. "'You've been wonderful. "'And although it didn't look like it, "'I was trying to play the game when you came in. "'I I really was, and and so was he.' She rose, and threw the handkerchief away from her. "'I'm not going to step out of the engagement by the side door you've left open for me, you dear old simple thing. It stands, if you like. We're all honourable people, and Oliver—' She drew a sharp little breath. "'Oliver will go out of our lives.' Doggy smiled, he had risen, and, taking her hands, kissed them. "'I've never known what a splendid Peggy it is, until I lose her. "'Look here, dear.' here's the whole thing in a nutshell. While I've been morbidly occupied with myself and my grievances and my disgrace and my efforts to pull through, and have gradually developed into a sort of half-breed between a tommy and a gentleman, with every mortal thing in me warped and changed, you've stuck to the original rotten ass you lashed into the semblance of a man in this very room, goodness knows how many months or years or centuries ago. In my infernal selfishness, I've treated you awfully badly.' "'No, you haven't,' she decided stoutly. "'Yes, I have. "'The ordinary girl would have told a living experiment like me "'to go hang long before this. "'But you didn't. "'And now you see a totally different sort of doggy, "'and you're making yourself miserable "'because he's a queer, unsympathetic, unfamiliar stranger.' "'All that may be so,' she said, meeting his eyes bravely. "'But if the unfamiliar doggy still cares for me, it doesn't matter. "'Here.' was a delicate situation. Two very tender-skinned vanities opposed to each other. The smart of seeing one's affianced bride in the arms of another man hurts grievously sore. It's a primitive sex affair, independent of love in its modern sense. If the savage's abandoned squaw runs off with another fellow, he pursues him with clubs and tomahawks until he has avenged the insult. Having known me to decline to spot a crocodile, "'so the finest flower of civilization cannot surrender the lady who once was his "'to the more favoured male without a primitive pang. "'On the other hand, Doggy knew very well that he did not love Peggy, "'that he had never loved Peggy. "'But how in common decency could a man tell a girl "'who had wasted a couple of years of her life over him that he had never loved her? "'Instead of replying to her questions, he walked about the room in a worried way. "'I take it.' said Peggy incisively, after a while, that you don't care for me any longer. He turned and halted at the challenge. He snapped his fingers. What was the good of all this beating of the bush? Look here, Peggy, let's face it out. If you'll confess that you and Oliver are in love with each other, I'll confess to a girl in France. Oh, said Peggy, with a swift change to coolness. There's a girl in France, is there? How long has this been going on? "'the last four days in billets before I got wounded,' said Doggy. "'What is she like?' "'Then Doggy suddenly laughed out loud, "'and took her by the shoulders in a grasp "'rougher than she had ever dreamed to lie "'in the strength or nature of Marmaduke Trevor, "'and kissed her the heartiest, honestest kiss "'she had ever had from a man, and rushed out of the room. "'Presently he returned, dragging with him "'the disconsolate major. "'Here,' said he, "'fix it up between you.' I've told Peggy about a girl in France. Gina wants to know what she's like. Peggy, shaken by the rude grip and the kiss, flashed and cried rebelliously. I'm not quite so sure that I want to fix it up with Oliver. Oh, yes, you do, cried Oliver. He snatched up Doggy's cap and jammed it on Doggy's head and cried. Doggy, you're the best and truest and finest of dear old chaps in the whole wide world. Doggy settled his cap, grinned and moved to the door anything else sir oliver roared delighted no private trevor you can go very good sir Doggy saluted smartly and went out he passed through the french window of the dining-room into the mellow autumn sunshine found himself standing in front of chipmunk who still smoked the pipe of elegant leisure by the door of the garage this is a damned good old world all the same isn't it said he "'If it was always like this, it would have its points,' replied the unworried chipmunk. Doggy had an inspiration. He looked at his watch. It was nearly one o'clock. "'Hungry?' "'Always hungry, especially about dinner-time. "'Come along with me to the Downshire Arms, and have a bite of dinner.' Chipmunk rose slowly to his feet, and put his pipe into his tunic pocket, and jerked a slow thumb backwards. "'Ain't you having your meals here?' only we'll now and then as sort of treats said doggy come along christ said chipmunk can you wait a bit until i've cleaned my buttons <laughs> oh bust your old buttons laughed doggy i'm hungry so the pair of privates marched through the old city to the downshire arms the select old-world hotel of durdlebury where doggy was known since babyhood and there sitting at a window-table with chipmunk he gave durdlebury the great sensation of its life If the dean himself, clad in tights and spangles, had juggled for pence by the west door of the cathedral, tongues could scarcely have wagged faster. But Doggy worried his head about gossip not one jot. He was in joyous mood, and ordered a gargantuan feast for Chipmunk, and bottles of the strongest old burgundy such as he thought would get a grip on Chipmunk's whisky-fied throat. And, under the genial influence of food and drink, Chipmunk told him tales of far lands and strange adventures when they emerged, much later, into the quiet streets, it was the great good fortune of Chipmunk's life that there was not the ghost of an assistant provost-marshal in Durdlebury. Doggy, old man, said Oliver afterwards, my wonder and reverence for you increases hour by hour. You are the only man in the whole world who has ever made Chipmunk drunk. You see, said Doggy modestly, I don't think he ever really loved anyone who fed him before. End of chapter 21.